following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. All right, well, here we are, believe it or not, in the, this is the fourth Sunday in the season of Lent, and it's our fourth week looking at this remarkable book by Rachel Held Evans, Wholehearted Faith. And uh, thank you, Corey, for calling out how important it's been to you. I know that you're not the only one in the room who's had that kind of experience with this book, with this author. And um, the good news, I mean, the bad news, of course, is that she died in such an untimely way. Um, But the good news is she wrote other books, and you'll have others that you can read. And if you've loved this book, you will love her other books as well. Now, we've talked, uh, as we've gone on through this series, about how this fits in the season of Lent for us, that it's a way of adding something to our spiritual lives, not just subtracting something from our life, which we sometimes do during Lent. Um, We've been encouraging you to read along and to go to the groups to discuss it during the week, and I've also been encouraging you that if you don't do any of those things, if you don't read the book or go to the groups, that you can still be part of what's happening on Sundays. Uh, and I hope that you will know that that is true today as well. But one thing that I haven't explained about this book is why uh, does it say work of the people on the screen in big letters and wholehearted faith in little letters? And I'll explain that to you real briefly. The work of the people is kind of a meta series that we are doing at Artisan all year. Um, it's, it's sort of a thematic thread that, that's weaving its way in and out of all the things that we're talking about uh, as a church community. And uh, you may remember that if you were here in October, we had a Sunday where we had nothing planned. Uh, it might have seemed like we had nothing planned today, by the way, but that's not true. We had lots of stuff planned. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just that, you know, I didn't pay as close attention as I should have sometimes. Um, but we had nothing planned, and we just came in and made it up as we went along, kind of based on people's memories of what we usually do and what seems important to people. I, I see Neith nodding because that, I think that was your first Sunday here. By the way, if that was your first Sunday visiting a church and you are still here five months later, that's amazing. I love that so much. Um, but um, that kind of kicked off the idea that I'm trying to reinforce, and we as a, as a leadership team and staff are trying to reinforce all year, which is that... It really isn't just about the people that you see up here, you know, three feet off the ground facing you. It's really about our whole community and how we are all part of what God has called Artisan Church to be in all kinds of different ways. The word liturgy, which is like we use to mean like the flow of our service, it means the work of the people. That's one way of understanding it. But really, all of the church's ministry is the work of the people. And if our ministry is just Sunday mornings for an hour and a half, that's not a great thing. Um, We should be doing stuff beyond our walls uh, every day of the week, every day of the year, and um, we are all part of that. So um, reading this book together is kind of in keeping with that theme, because you are all bringing your experience of this book to each other, not just by being here on Sundays and occasionally talking about it in sermon blocks where I invite you to talk about it. Um, Introverts, don't worry, I'm not doing that today. But also by being... uh, part of those groups that I mentioned during the week, and even the way this came about, which was the leadership team's idea, what a great idea, I never would have come up with. Without the work of the people uh, at Artisan, we wouldn't have had this great experience, and Corey wouldn't have read Rachel Held Evans for the first time, and so many others of you wouldn't have had the chance to engage with these ideas. So, um, even the chapters that were selected for our limited time that we spend on Sunday mornings to highlight were chosen by other people. So, 
Uh, it's really been the work of a team of people, and you are part of uh, the work of the people as well. I want to keep reinforcing that for you. So this week, we've moved into a new section of the book. Did you notice that? Are you a person who's drawn to the table of contents and you kind of see where everything fits together? Um, it's okay if you're not that particular type of nerd. Uh, but the first few chapters were, it was sort of the section of the book was the title of the book, Wholehearted Faith. And now she's moved on to this section of the book called Essays on the Christian Life. Now, whether or not you're a book nerd in the way that I'm a book nerd, it can be helpful to orient yourself to the sections of something that you're reading. And that goes for the Bible as well, for what it's worth. And this chapter, The Steady Work of Living Water, oh, wow, did I love this chapter. <laughs> um, I, if, if I talked to you at any length about every passage I highlighted in this chapter, <laughs> we would be here well past lunch and you wouldn't get any bagels. They'd all be stale. Um, I will be quoting some of the stuff that she says here. I can't help it. Uh, this, there's so much good stuff in this chapter. I mean, she starts out by admitting... Uh, that she is prone to cynicism, which, boy, if you want to know the way to my heart, um, that is it. Um, and she says, kind of like, who wouldn't be cynical? Have you looked at the world lately? And I'm like, yes, this is so validating. And then she says, but actually, cynicism is just calcified anger, and it's a sign that you've given up and are giving in. Which felt kind of like an attack. Um, <laughs> Also fair. <laughs> uh, but anyway, this, this chapter is not about cynicism. It's actually about baptism. And Rachel uses the story of Jesus' own baptism, which you just heard read a minute ago, as a starting point. And that's what I would like to do, too, in this uh, sermon, is to use the baptism of Jesus as kind of the way to get us into the ideas that we're going to talk about. And the way that I want to do that, the way that I want to start out with Jesus' baptism is by leading you in a brief, special reading of this text. Again, it's called an Ignatian reading. Um, comes from Ignatius of Loyola, who sort of is credited with, um, is attributed with this, this method of reading. And it simply means, uh, it's like praying as you read the scriptures in a particular way, which is to uh, use your senses as an imaginative way to reflect on a gospel passage. So, this type of reading slash prayer, and I love the ones that are, that are both because I like to check off boxes, and if I can check off Bible reading and prayer at the same time with one thing, I love that. Um, but this is not necessarily the type of prayer where you're seeking answers or even where you're uh, deliberately um, talking to God with specific words, um, although if that happens, it's totally fine. Rather, it's a chance to become engrossed in the story of the scriptures and in the stories of Jesus. And so what I'm going to do is read this passage to you one more time, because you weren't prepared for this when it was read to you a minute ago. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to sort of soak it in as I read it, and to use your imagination to experience these words with your five senses. Now, depending on how strong your coffee was, you might not actually experience the, sensory, the sensations, um, but you can imagine that you're experiencing the sensations. And then I'm going to ask you to shout out, um, not, not talk to each other, don't worry, introverts, but sort of a few of you can maybe shout out some of the things that you see or hear or smell or feel or taste as I read this passage. Oops, it's not Matthew, it's Mark. I turned to the wrong gospel. Bear with me. Okay, Mark 1, 4 
through 11. Remember, use your imagination to imagine the senses, the sensations. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Okay, so um, I'll monitor the Zoom chat here because I want our Zoom participants to be able to, to uh, join in if they'd like. But uh, just from wherever you are, shout out a one or two word answer. What are, what's something that you see with your imagination as that passage is read? Something you see. John's outfit, yes. A revolutionary, okay. Now you're, in t you're doing the work of interpretation. Which, which character do you see? Okay, thank you. I, I'm not scolding you, by the way, as if, as if you would care. <laughs> um, but simply, <laughs> yeah, yeah, cynical. Sorry, what was that? The dove. You see the dove. All right. You see him eating the locusts and honey. Yeah, we'll get to taste in a minute. <laughs> a desert. All right, there's some imagination happening. Thank you. Rough terrain. What's that? Wet, baptized people. I love that. Thank you. Yes, this is exactly what we do with Ignatian reading. A river. Yes. How about something that you hear? You hear the locusts. Okay. <laughs> do locusts scream? Um, <laughs> flowing water in the river, somebody says on Zoom. That could be something you see or it could be something you hear, couldn't it? Maybe even you hear John's voice. There's a lot of proclaiming going on. Thank you. What's something you hear as you read between the lines? Something that isn't stated in the text explicitly. Heat? Oh, a lot of people. Thank you. I don't know why I thought you would say that you heard the heat. I guess if it's hot enough, you can hear it. I've lived in Las Vegas. You could hear the heat there. Yeah, but you can hear the people. That When there's a crowd of people, they make noise. Yeah, thank you. What else? Yep, John's voice. I wonder what we imagine John's voice being like. Is it, is it deep? Is it high? Is it loud? Is it soft? But everybody gets quiet so they can hear it. How about something you smell? Can you smell anything in this passage? River water. Yes, river water. Uh-huh. Oh, honey, yes. Yeah. Oh, wow, I hadn't thought about smelling the honey. That's lovely. I was thinking of tasting the honey. What's that? One more time. Okay, wet camel hair, yes. He's wearing a camel hair outfit and he's going in the water. That's, have you smelled a wet dog? I think we're kind of in the neighborhood there. Yes, thank you. 
I would never have come up with that one. Thank you so much. How about something you can feel? Cold water. Hopefully not too cold, right? Hot dust. Oh, hot dust. Maybe the cold water would feel good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yes, wet camel hair. Yeah. John, could you baptize me a little farther away from your body there? <laughs> okay. So you're feeling the peace of, is that what you said, of God's, God's voice? By the way, does it say it's God's voice? Yeah, it's, I think it's strongly implied. Yeah, yeah. How about something you can taste? Honey, uh, honey yes. <laughs> Somebody's like, I'm going to say honey so I don't have to taste the locusts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure they had butter or saute pans, but uh, yeah, I suppose that would improve it. It improves most things. Yeah, maybe you taste the river water. If he dunks you too fast, you might taste it in the back of your throat, kind of in your nose even, yeah. Thank you. Um, what wonderful imaginations you all have. And by the way, it is not a sin to use your imagination when you read the Bible. I hope that that gives you just a little taste, if you'll pardon the expression, of how it can expand your experience of the scriptures and of, of the stories of Jesus especially. And by the way, it's not just an idle exercise. It's not a way for me to kill time in the sermon. I don't think that's going to be our problem today. Um, being mindful of your sensory perceptions can be extremely healthy and grounding for you. Um, sort of helps you orient yourself into the reality of which you are actually a part, right? As opposed to the one that you might wish existed or used to exist or might exist in the future, right? Um, you might have heard of the 54321 exercise that's helpful to use when you're feeling anxious or panicked. You know, what are five things I can see? What are four things I can hear? What are, and I'm not sure which order the rest of the senses go in, but you get the point. As you go through that list, it sort of slows you down and grounds you in the place you are. Um, but this is actually a really powerful thing to imagine uh, at all times, whether you're feeling anxious or panicked or whatever else you might be feeling, because it simply sort of reminds you that you exist at all. So take the time to taste your food. Take the time to, to feel the, uh, the little flecks of icy sleet on your face without judgment about what a hellscape Rochester is in March, <laughs> which is precisely what I had to do when walking to my house earlier this week. And it did help, briefly. Smell the moss under your feet, or maybe it's gasoline spilled out from somebody's busted car. Listen to the birds. Count how many you can hear. By the way, the birds always know that spring is coming. They've been announcing it. Have you noticed it yet? And by doing all of this, I promise you, it's not, it's not just some woo-woo thing. Uh, I promise that you will find yourself more present in the moment that God has given you to live right now. Because until you are present in this moment, which uh, I need to tell you happens to be the only moment that actually exists, until you're grounded in that moment, I think you're going to be inevitably at least a little bit pulled away from the earth that God has called you to tend, the justice that God has called you to strive for, and the people that God has called you to love, one of whom I insist on reminding you is yourself. 
And this form of sensory experience as you're reading the Bible can be a way of grounding yourself in the words of sacred scripture, of becoming closer to that particular part of God's story. And of course, most especially to the gospel stories, which draw us closer to Jesus. So that's Ignatian reading. Take that and use it on your own. Uh, I encourage you. I hope that you will try that really soon. But let's talk for a few minutes about what this chapter is about, which, as I said earlier, is baptism. Baptism, I'm going to keep walking into this microphone stand, excuse me. Baptism, much like its sacramental counterpoint, uh, Holy Communion, is one of the rituals of Christianity that is celebrated by everybody. There really are no Christians who don't do baptism at all. Now, of course, we all have different ways of doing baptism, and of course, because this is how we do. We've sometimes in our history um, debated those differences and decided in some cases that those differences about how we do baptism are justifiable reasons to get into huge fights with each other and call each other names and cast each other out of our various fellowships and things. And that's a really um, unfortunate but true um, thing. But the real deep uh, truth is that baptism is one of the holy mysteries that unites us together because we all do it in one way or another. If we weren't so busy fighting about the differences about it, we might be able to take two seconds and recognize that it's a unifying thing that we all do it at all. And that's one of the things that Rachel says about baptism. And she says it in in the way only she could say. She says, Christianity offers an uncomfortable but necessary and insoluble interdependence. Then she goes on to say, the church, by which I mean not just the congregation into which I was baptized or the one that I now call home, but rather the universal church that shares one baptism is a whole network of people spanning 2,000 years and every continent and culture on the globe who love and pray and believe on one another's behalf. Wow. The way she points out both the safety and the danger of being in community with other people. The way she expresses both her resistance to and her utter reliance on this kind of spiritual intimacy and how baptism is a symbol of that and a reminder of that. But then she goes on to demonstrate exactly the type of thing that I am really dreaming about when I imagine you doing an Ignatian reading of the Bible on your own sometime this week, she imagines the baptism of Jesus. And, and she doesn't, I don't think she calls it an Ignatian reading, but it really is. And here's what she says. I, this one I'm going to have put on the screen so you can follow along. It's a little bit longer of a, of a quotation. It's so, so good. She takes that story of Jesus' baptism and she says, Imagine Jesus' baptism. His dunking, not in a chlorinated baptistry under an acoustic tiled ceiling, but in the living waters of the Jordan River under an open sky. Part of a sprawling watershed, these waters are connective. They are fed by snowmelt from Mount Hermon and the surrounding hills, and they in turn feed the Dead Sea. 
These waters fuel the tamarisk and the rhododendron blossoming on the riverbanks. These waters parch the thirst of ibex and gazelle, which come down to drink. These waters form a flowing buffet for the stork and the kingfisher lurking in the reeds and shrubs. These waters host catfish and carp and bream, tiny mollusks and soft-shelled turtles. These waters irrigate fields of grape and grain and transmogrify into milk and honey. Baptism, whether in the Jordan's waters or any other, ties us to the cycle of life through all of which water runs through. It reminds us that we belong. Wow, what a gift she has. Baptism reminds us that we belong. And I would say also that it reminds us that we're connected to each other. And even more than that, that we're connected to the earth, to the whole creation that God made, that God called good, and that God charged us to till and keep and care for. What an amazing thing to imagine that as you are baptized, whether you are dunked into a horse trough or a river, or whether you're sprinkled with water, whether it happened to you as an adult or as a little baby, that in all of those cases, this simple and most fundamental elemental reality of water became a way of God's grace connecting you to each other, to everyone else who's been baptized, and to the whole planet, which is sustained and upheld by water. I don't know how you get to something that beautiful without doing something like an Ignatian reading and imagining rhododendrons and soft-shelled turtles somehow appearing in the story because Mark didn't mention those. Mark is, if you know the, Gospels, the Gospel writers, Mark is the one who's like, let's get on with the story. He's always, like, the next word in the passage is immediately. And the next word in the passage after that is probably also immediately. He doesn't really dwell on the little details. You have to take some time and let the Spirit soak it into you a little bit. Baptism reminds us that we belong and that we're connected to each other. And the, the incredibly powerful and painful thing is that that is true no matter where and what kind of baptism you received. Some of us were baptized into a church that later rejected us. Guess what? It still counts. There are days you might not even want it to count. You might want to reject that baptism and get a new one. I generally say no when people ask me to re-baptize them because my belief is that the Spirit of God transfers God's grace to you in the moment of baptism in spite of the many shortcomings of the pastor who dunked you. <laughs> that that is made real in the community of faith, even when the community of faith screws it up so badly that you never want to walk into a church again as long as you live. And here's the thing. If you are in need of a place to belong, 
The church at its best can offer that to you, and I hope that this church at our best will offer that to you. And that is not a promise that I will never do anything to hurt you. It's not a promise that this church will never do anything that it shouldn't to hurt you. But it is a promise that God's grace is present in the waters of baptism and that we fragile, frail, messy people by some miracle get to be part of conveying it to each other. May we be a place where your connection to humanity and to all of creation, which is a connection that's true whether I say it or not, can be made known, can be reinforced, where it can become cause for deep trust and care for one another. And if you haven't been baptized into that sacred reality, um, I'll tell you that we are holding a baptism service here at Artisan um, on April 23rd, which is two Sundays after Easter. We'll be right here in this room, right here at this time. We'll be diving into that holy mystery. And uh, if you would like to be baptized, or if you're a parent who would like to have a child baptized, uh, it would be a great privilege and honor to be part of that conveyance of God's grace and the mystery of it all into your life and your family's life. By the way, if you're a person who does not prefer infant baptism, that's totally fine. We also do baby dedications because we're not going to let that fight rip us apart. <laughs> um, and so if you prefer that, just let me know, uh, let us know, and we'd be happy to do that as well. So as we transition to communion, which is that other sacred holy mystery, <laughs> Allow me to read just one more brief quotation. This one's not by Rachel Held Evans, but it's by another brilliant woman author who she cites in this chapter. An author who happens to be both Jewish and also one of the most insightful New Testament scholars I have ever read, Amy Jill Levine. And writing about Jesus, Amy Jill Levine says, what is infectiously appealing about him is that he likes to celebrate He's consistently meeting people not at the altar, but at a table, whether as host, guest, or the body and blood to be consumed. <laughs> and of course, what did we do? We took the sacrament that happened at a table and we started calling it the altar. <laughs> so today, in lieu of the other ways that I invite people to take communion, I want to do it this way. I want you to imagine that Jesus... The feasting Jesus is hosting a dinner, and he has invited all of the people he loves to come and dine with him, to sit around his table together and be his people. And I want to tell you that you are one of the people he loves and that he has invited you. And if Jesus were to send you a dinner invitation, would you say yes? Because I believe he has invited you to this table and my question to you is, what will you say in response to that invitation? The specific form is that you'll come through the middle if you choose to take communion with us. Take a piece of the bread. It's all gluten-free. Dip it in the wine or in the juice. Choose the one that's more appropriate for you and your family and receive it. I say lots of other things about communion, but today I'm going to leave it with, that's how you do it. And then you go back to your seats this way, and Jesus invites you to dinner. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.